1: This podcast contains explicit language.
2: There are whispers that Paul Ryan might resign. (gasps) We asked Matt Fuller when and why this could happen and who could be the next speaker.
3: Accused child molester Roy Moore lost the Alabama Senate race this week. Jen Benry was there and she tells us how she knew that this was going to happen.
2: And the government could be about to crack down on a popular herbal supplement, even though some people are using it to cope with opioid addiction.
3: I'm Arthur Delaney.
2: And I'm Elise Foley.
3: And this is So That Happened, the HuffPost Politics podcast about things that happened in politics.
2: This is Elise Foley, and I'm joined in studio by my colleague, Arthur Delaney. Hello. And we have Matt Fuller, uh, also of HuffPost, calling in from the Capitol, uh, where he's been chasing down various stories. And we are going to talk about Paul Ryan and when he's going to resign. Probably (laughs) not if, but when, right? Um, So Fuller, just can you fill us in um, on, you know, what people are saying about this on the Hill?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a lot of rumors going on right now that, uh, you know, when does Paul Ryan resign? When does he step down? Or when, when does his tenure as Speaker end? And there's a lot of, there's differing sort of accounts on this. Um, Politico has a story up right now that's saying, you know, he's at least told his close confidence, confidants, that he's not going to run for another term as Speaker, meaning, you know, 2018 is it for him, that he'll be done with Congress and uh, we'll have a new speaker in 20, 2019, but there's also another rumor going around that maybe Ryan might might want to step out earlier than that. Um, this is sort of akin to what John Boehner did, where, you know, he, he, he had his big moment, which for him was bringing the Pope to the Capitol, and then the next morning he announced that he was going to resign. And uh, in that intervening time, he was able to pass a bunch of bills, these, quote, barn cleaning bills that uh, sort of set up the next speaker. Um, you know, on on the right path, which which was basically, you know, two-year spending agreements, uh, debt ceiling. And, and frankly, uh, we haven't really renewed those things again. I mean, we're still operating off of basically the same things that Boehner did at the very end of his tenure. Uh, and so there's a there's a thought that after tax reform, which is, you know, that's been Paul Ryan's big thing, that maybe he wants to, you know, to call a quits here and on a high note and then do a, sort of a, a large spending deal with the two-year spending caps again. Uh, one The one that's perhaps not great for conservatives, uh, also do DACA, the immigration program, uh, you know, maybe throwing some other things there, but shoring up Obamacare, you could do another debt ceiling raise. There's a whole host of sort of uh, barn cleaning items that could be potentially coming down the pike here, but we don't really know exactly, you know, what he's thinking, but he sort of says he's, he's staying, and um, that's the line right now, but we're just sort of waiting it out, and everyone's, sort of positioning themselves for a new world order if he does step down.
3: Matt Fuller, you have a great story on this rumor this week in which you talk to a guy who says that tax reform is Paul Ryan's meet the
0: Pope. Right, right. I mean, it, you know, for those guys, you know, Boehner, he says, you know, he had, he had Pope Francis come, I think it was September 24th of uh, 2015, and he sort of leaves that day kind of teary-eyed. Uh, goes to breakfast the next morning and, and thinks about whether or not he wants to continue with this and decides that he doesn't, and it just sort of came to him that morning that he was he was out, he was done. Um, you know, it's possible that Ryan thinks of tax reform the same way. It seems like he might have a few other things he wants to do, but obviously, you know, with the difficulties of this job, I mean, it hasn't gotten easier since Boehner had it, and um certainly the Donald Trump element here is another thing that we haven't even addressed, but that hasn't gone, you know, as swimmingly as, you know, Paul Ryan might have hoped. So, yeah, I think, you know, these things have got to be weighing on him a bit. And obviously this isn't a job that he wanted from the very start. He kind of he took it uh, reluctantly and not kicking and screaming, but certainly not something that he was angling for.
3: Since when, though, is tax reform Paul Ryan's pope? Since when is that the number one thing he wanted to do? Now, over his years in Congress as budget committee chairman, as ways and means chairman, he's proposed documents that are really sweeping that they'll reform like five programs at once. And I really thought of him more, I think like his Medicare voucher proposal uh, and his Medicaid idea. You know, those things were also touted as uh, life goals of his.
0: Well, I think, yeah. I mean, I think the entitlement reform stuff, uh, reforming Medicare and Medicaid, certainly big items that he's wanted to do and he has put his name on uh, with the Ryan budgets in the past. But certainly tax reform was something that I think really got him up in the morning. Um, he's, uh, you know, as he'll tell you proudly, he's a devotee of Jack Kemp. Uh, he really saw that the tax code needed a rewrite here. And this is something that he's been angling for for, for I'd, I'd say, really the majority of his congressional career. Uh, he always had insights, the ways and means chairmanship, and he looked at the budget committee chairmanship, I think, as a stepping stone to that. Uh, so I, I really do think that this is maybe the ultimate thing that he wanted to do. Uh, you're absolutely right. He has other things on the table, and he's mentioned these things. Uh, even today in a press conference, he was sort of saying how he wants to tackle welfare reform, which, you know, doesn't necessarily mean uh, reform in, in, in the uh, strictest definition for the people who are on welfare, but um, I think that tax reform is a big ticket item for him and is certainly the thing that maybe got him up in the morning for a lot of years.
2: Well, and it's also the moment right now, uh, as you mentioned, they're coming up on all these things that he might have to do that might require him to anger a bunch of Uh, other Republicans. And so, uh, you know, saying, okay, I'll do the tax bill and then I will get out of here after making everybody angry and setting up people for the next thing kind of does make sense timing wise. Right. Like the same way that Boehner did it.
0: For sure. And I mean, you can, you know, as you know, DACA is definitely an issue here right now where uh, there's a lot of conservatives, a lot of Republicans who who are very uncomfortable with the idea of legislatively renewing DACA. Uh, at the same time, Democrats are, are sort of drawing a hard line in the sand here. And if we're going to avoid a shutdown, there's going to be some, some sort of give on, on that item. And who's the one who takes the blame on the Republican Party? Uh, Paul Ryan might, might end up saying, you know what, I'll, I'll gladly take that bullet because he might actually believe in that program and something that he says if this is the last job he actually has in Washington or if he has another job that he wants, maybe say the presidency in 10 years or more. Uh, he might think that being the guy who sort of is famous for uh, passing DACA might be a, another good legacy item, maybe not this year or the next year, but uh, certainly down the road. Here is a question about Paul
3: Ryan as a person. He's been in Washington his entire adult life. He came here, I think, as an intern after college, and then he was a Hill staffer where welfare reform made a great impression on him. You know, He worked waiting tables at tortilla coast does he actually want to leave washington
0: <laughs> it's you know it, you're right so it, his entire adult life really has been here um think about i, th- I think he ran for congress when he was 28 years old right? he came to congress in 1999 so he was he won a seat uh, in 1998 um yeah i think his adult life really has been in washington one interesting question he was asked today was about members sleeping in their offices uh, and Paul Ryan is one someone who famously does sleep in his office, and he said it wasn't even a matter of, of frugality. He said it was a matter of convenience because he works from 6 in the morning to midnight, which, if you know, if that's true, like, what kind of life is that? <laughs> it sounds terrible. Um, mm. I don't know how – you know, it sounds like a total reset to me. And the guy, you know, I think he, he, he admits that he sort of works six days a week and sometimes seven uh, if you're, you know, doing – Events out there are uh, fundraising or going places. Uh, there's a lot of travel. It doesn't sound like a great job to me. Uh, certainly not like, you know, cleaning sewers or anything. I think that that's a, a huge misnomer in Washington that this is the worst job in Washington or something. But um, it's not a fun job to have to manage, you know, the interests of all these people who, who want to yell at you and you have to basically lie to them and uh, disappoint people and you know, you ultimately get to blame a lot of times. I think it's a it's a tough job, uh, and it's certainly it's going to be a change of pace for Paul Ryan to go back to Wisconsin and you know do I don't know what. Maybe he maybe he stays here and ends up as the Heritage Foundation chairman or something. But um, you know, who knows?
3: Yeah, that's uh, is he going to like pick up a bow and arrow and just survive on deer in Wisconsin, or is he just going to get some classic DC? Uh, consultant gig and sort of remain
0: the truth is though like you know guys like this don't they don't need to, to do that anymore like Boehner has sort of set the tone you can sit on a few boards make a few hundred thousand dollars doing that um, it's not very difficult to make more than you know I, I know that the speaker makes more than the 174 I think it's in the 230s or so uh, which is a you know a great salary but um, for these guys, they can make multiples of that. Doing a couple speaking gigs a year, sitting on a couple boards, it wouldn't be difficult for him to make a million dollars a year and really do hardly anything. Uh, by you know, at least by comparison of what he normally does. So I don't think he needs a consulting job, or he doesn't need to you know become a lobbyist or anything like that. Um, and I and I think that would be very unlikely. But uh, he might miss the pace of it. I mean, certainly that's true of I think Eric Kanner who you know, famously lost his majority leader uh, race in the primary and has sort of stayed on as like an investment advisor, really chasing down, uh, you know, big fish investors uh, for a group. And I think he still misses the sort of the pace of Washington and and the the hustle and bustle of it.
2: Yeah, I mean, both Cantor and Paul Ryan are younger than Boehner is. So I think that that, you know, that's something. Paul Ryan is not uh, quite retirement age yet. Uh, right, I think in terms 47, of
0: 47, and 48 next month. Uh, you know, the, he, they've called themselves still to this day the Young Guns. Himself, Kevin McCarthy and Eric Eric Cantor. So, and and you know, he's a he's a young he's a young 47, 48.
2: And he's got he's got kids that you know he's always saying he wants to spend more time with. Um. So, Matt, who if Paul Ryan does leave, who would be the speaker next?
0: You know, so it's an interesting question. I think this is part of the speculation. Uh, I, you know, I put my money on Steve Scalise, the majority whip. Um, obviously, I think Kevin McCarthy has some interest in the job. He's, he's really next in line for it, um, the majority leader. But he has passed on this job. This is sort of McCarthy's uh, refusal to, or, you know, his, whatever you want to call it. He stepped down from running for the race, and that was really what brought Paul Ryan into the job. Uh, there might be another situation with that. I think if Scalise did run, he would win overwhelmingly. I think he's got a a lot of goodwill from, I remember this congressional shooting in in June. Uh, Steve Scalise was severely injured and and he's won back a lot of uh, goodwill through through that, even though, you know, there's a time where um, Scalise was looking like he might be down and out in his congressional career after it came to light that uh, he had spoken to some white supremacist groups, and, you know, there was some questions about his past where he was running Louis- in Louisiana as David Duke without the baggage. Uh, he sort of weathered that storm pretty well. Uh, he's very well liked among the members, and he certainly has the whip operation. He literally has the whip operation uh, to sort of win in a head-to-head race. But the one wild card with the whole thing really is, is Trump. Kevin McCarthy has definitely kept a close relationship with Trump. Uh, not that Scalise hasn't, he certainly has too, but, um, you know, if Trump tips his, throws his weight behind McCarthy, it might change the calculus and also it might change Scalise's calculus. If McCarthy wants to run and decides he's, he wants the job, uh, Scalise might not run against him, and, and, you know, that could be the deciding factor. But we also have the Freedom Caucus here who's sort of playing kingmaker. Um, this is a Group of about 35 conservatives uh, who have a lot of concessions and have in the past sort of blocked McCarthy. They have a say over this, and they certainly, I don't, I think, would have some problems with McCarthy becoming speaker uh, without a lot of major structural changes. And I think that Scalise is in a better position, really, to negotiate with them more so than McCarthy.
3: Isn't it weird that Trump has all that pull with a significant faction of House Republicans after? He's shown he has no loyalty and weak political instincts. He's now completely burned himself twice in the Alabama special election. I guess this isn't really a question. It's a comment.
0: Well, it is weird, though, right? I mean, he's got such a low approval rating. The only thing you could say is that for some members in in their districts, Trump is still very popular, uh, and they're still very afraid of crossing Trump. Um, (laughs) You know, it is a Republican president. This is a Republican party. They are Republicans. Uh, it, you know, for some members that, that weighs heavily on them and in, in, in particular certain districts where Trump was very popular. All right. Are they going to pass the tax bill? Certainly looks like it certainly looks like, uh, you know, you get your shit sandwich to be eating soon, right?
3: Yeah. I'm going yeah. Shit sandwich.
0: I don't, I don't, I don't see that this falling apart anytime soon. Uh, it looks like they're going to have a, a formal agreement on Friday and they'll put this up for a vote next week. Um, I think it's still you know, first of all, Luther Strange will still be here. Doug Jones will not. Uh, they have no intention right now of of holding out the vote for you know a Democrat to come in. But I think they still have the same it's the same dynamic. Basically, you know, most Republicans who voted for this the in the House on the first time, they're still going to be for it again. Uh, I don't really see many members flipping there and they had a little bit of a cushion last time too and i think it's the same exact vote in the senate uh bob corker maybe being the only one who votes no on this um you know you've you've seen rubio sort of bandy about what the child tax credit and certain concessions but i think ultimately he gets behind this I, I don't really see much problem uh for republicans passing a tax cut here
2: all right well let's let's do our predictions so do you think that paul ryan will step down and when
0: oh <laughs> I, you know,
2: you wrote a whole story about this. So <laughs> just make a
0: prediction, man. The, 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 the best prediction, the most likely prediction is that he steps down in November after the election. But no buts. That was it. Well, there's a significant chance that if he's before that or he indicates that he's going to step down be- before then. Still, I, I, I'll say that the, the best prediction you can make is that he's he's he says he's leaving in November and a new speaker comes in with the new Congress.
2: I'm going to predict that he stays forever.
0: Oh, yeah, I predict.
2: No, no. I, I predict that uh, the that he'll uh, leave in after n- November of next year and that um, then he'll become some sort of lobbyist. I don't think he's going to go back and lobbyist on a board or something.
3: Uh, I predict that he's going to subsist on wildlife in Wisconsin.
2: <laughs> Not not on entitlements, though.
3: Not on entitlements. We, I, um, I
2: would
0: mention, we'd be remiss to, to not note uh, Randy Bryce, the, uh, quote, iron stash running against uh, Paul Ryan. I've gotten a lot of comments on Twitter from people being like, he's not going to have an option. Ryan, Randy Bryce is going to win. And, you know, we'll, we'll see. But, it's it, you know, the district isn't exactly overwhelmingly Republican. It's actually a closer district than a lot of people think. It's just that Ryan has enjoyed a lot of popularity there.
3: I predict Randy Bryce will win.
2: (laughs) All right. Well, we will see. So thank you so much, Matt, for taking some time from the Hill. And thank you, Arthur.
0: You're welcome. Thanks, guys.
2: bluenile.com
3: Hi, it's me, Arthur Delaney, and I have a special request. If you like so that happened, please consider giving us a shout out on iTunes. Give us 4 or 5 stars. Please don't give us fewer than four, though. Uh, Think of us as like an Uber, but for political commentary. So if, if we get a low rating, they'll take our car away. Thank you.
2: Hi, I'm Elise Foley, and I am here with two people who predicted the result of the Alabama Senate race. I'm here with Arthur Delaney. Yes. And Jen Bendry. Hi. So thank you guys both for coming on. So if people were not following the news, I don't know how you'd miss it if you listen to this podcast, but Roy Moore, um, famous person who was kicked out of being a judge multiple times for uh, not following laws and um, also <laughs> <laughs> alleged... Uh, child predator oh, yeah. he lost he lost the senate race and a democrat won uh, a senate race in alabama for the first time in i believe like 25 years um doug jones so it was a pretty huge upset and both of you i i thought that it wouldn't happen both of you said that you thought it would jen you actually went there so you have a better sense kind of i think of what was going on there than we did from here. So can you tell us a little bit about what it was like when you were there? So I went to Alabama for four
4: days and I drove all around the state. I spent time in a town that loved Roy Moore and I spent time in a city where people liked Doug Jones. And I got to say, I went to Alabama thinking Roy Moore was going to win. All the you know, conventional wisdom was like, no way can a Democrat win Alabama. It's been
2: too long. And when you went, this was after a lot of the stories had come out? Um, about him and young women, or was this before?
4: Oh, it was after. This okay. was, a, like, the week before the election. So I, every, all the stories were out. He was looking bad, but it's people just were not expecting a Democrat to win in Alabama. But as I walked around, I I just noticed little things here and there that stayed with me after I left. And by the time I was on the plane flying back to D.C., I, was, I just had this gut feeling Doug Jones is going to win. And... It was just little things. It was uh, like one guy I talked to in Birmingham said that he was a pessimist, but he believed Doug Jones would win. And the reason was because he has never seen so many yard signs around town before, not even when Obama ran. And that was a presidential election, first black president, a heavily black city. There were more signs for Doug Jones this time. So that's something interesting. And somebody else I talked to said that – this was a a black woman I talked to – said that um, she was definitely voting. Everyone she knew was voting. And part of the driving factor for her was that people were still kind of licking their wounds from not turning out to vote for Hillary Clinton because they all believed she would win. And then some people just didn't go out and vote. Hillary Clinton didn't win. And so now a year later, this woman was saying, you know, we don't want to have that happen again. So I think we 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 got to represent our state. We're tired of looking really terrible in the news. And so it was little things like that. So by the time I left... I don't know. It's like those intangible moments, you know? It wasn't polling or anything. It was just being there. People were seeming like there was a momentum there.
3: Sounds like good reporting by you, Jen. It wasn't bad. (laughs) (laughs) I made my prediction based on nothing, really, except that Roy Moore is, uh, you know, a child molester and a judge. Alleged. Uh, alleged. (laughs) Credibly alleged. Yes. But I, uh, since I did make that prediction on this show, I thought we could maybe listen to it and also find out what you <laughs> so pre- that
2: you can glow, yeah. <laughs> or we can find
3: out what you predicted. Maybe you also <laughs> got this one right with your bold prediction. I guess we'll see. It's time for bold predictions. I predict Roy Moore doesn't win. No, no, Senator Roy Moore. What do you say, Sharish? Well, you know, uh, the other guy's a liberal Democrat. He's bad on the wall. He's bad on. He's a former prosecutor. The president said he's bad on crime. He's a former prosecutor. That wow, R- like R- R- that did not sound. I didn't <laughs> yeah, hear a bold, a bold prediction. <laughs> I didn't hear a bold prediction there. Roy
2: Moore is going to win. Yeah, I think Roy Moore is going to win.
3: Ooh, <laughs> these bold predictions are clashing. <laughs> well, we'll, well unfor- it. I feel pretty confident. I
2: feel pretty confident about my bold prediction.
3: Uh, I'm going to trust. I trust the women, and I trust the polls. I, they show him going down, so I, I think he'll go down. Wow, so at uh, least you and SV Date got your bold predictions wrong. Sorry. We
2: did. <laughs>
4: <laughs> but, Arthur, did you predict by how much Doug Jones would win?
3: No, how much did he win by?
4: He. My prediction on another radio show that I can't say because who talks about their competitors? My bold prediction <laughs> on that real. rate. We have a lot of competition. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> My bold prediction was he wins, and it's by between 1% and 2%. Oh,
3: you nailed that, too, because it was 1.5%. And there's a
4: recording out there in the world where I said that, just to gloat a little bit.
3: Now, the the point, you know, your detail from speaking to that African American woman there uh, was probably, you were right to pick up on that because the exit polls told that story. Um, You know, in 2008, the, the share of the Alabama electorate that uh was African American was about 25% but in this election it was 29%. And that was the thing people who said you know if Doug Jones is going to win he will need higher black turnout and that did happen.
4: They were they were pushing for I mean I mean Democratic pollsters in Alabama were saying we have to hit at least 27%. We got to get that. That's and that's a big deal to even get from the typical level of 25% of black voters making up the electorate to 27 percent. It doesn't sound like a lot. It's only two points, but that's a huge difference. And I think Obama got 28 percent. So if Doug Jones, if now it shows that black voters turned out as 29 percent of the electorate, that's incredible. That's more than anybody was predicting.
2: Yeah. And in uh, these types of non-presidential elections, it's even more rare to have this really good turnout. So it was pretty... Great combination of factors, I think, for Doug Jones. I mean, one thing that's interesting is the uh, uncertainty for Democrats of how um, much to take this as meaning much of anything for the future. Obviously, uh, you're not going to have every race in 2018 be a Democrat against an accused child molester. Um, So... (laughs) I don't know, what do you guys think? I, do you think that this it means anything good for Democrats I or think, is this just a total fluke?
3: I think it does. Uh like the uh the really big victory in the Virginia governor's race, I think this is another harbinger of a democratic wave. They don't have a a child molester to run against in every district, but they they do have the party of Donald Trump who is, you know, uh not a child molester but an accused sexual assaulter. And uh, in general, a buffoon in a lot of ways. I I think there's anti-Trump sentiment in Alabama like you picked up on, Jen. And I think that that will be the case everywhere.
4: I I think it's you also have to consider that there is a a wave of Democratic victories happening at the local level around the country that they're not. Is flashy of races when somebody wins a city council seat or a school board seat. But if you look at all the races that have happened at those levels in Illinois and Virginia, other states that have had their elections this year, Democrats have not only swept, but they are winning seats that have never been held by a Democrat before. And the people who are winning are largely women or um, w- people of color. So there's a there's something happening at the Gra- at the grassroots level
3: and, yeah. everywhere. Yes, and you know, just tra- historically, you do expect the party out of power to be successful in the first midterm election after uh, a presidential election. That's like one of those boring uh political science facts that you always hear, but it's you know, true and there's these special other factors. It seems like a lot is going on and Democrats will benefit from it.
2: Yeah, I mean the f- the factor will still be true in every single race that people who maybe didn't vote last time will feel like like the woman that you talked to uh, and her friends. Um, you know, we should have had more turnout last time. We should get more turnout this time. I mean, I think just the question is how long that lasts. It's lasted clearly a year and been pretty strong. Um, so I-, I think maybe we can. St- we maybe uh the trends will stretch another year well
3: the way president trump i think unlike most previous presidents it just seeps into everything in your daily life the fact that donald trump is president and how weird it is and how bizarre his behavior is like every day he does something so weird that it would be a months-long story if it had been any previous president like just his tweets are so weird that well, I, I think it, I think that this will this sentiment of we're stuck in a Trump world will I think not the, dissipate.
2: it's also uh, the fact that he's been part of like this national conversation that everybody's having about um, sexual harassment and sexual ha- assault. Yes, the fact that he's a part of it. I mean, if you had a different president, perhaps not. If you had a president Hillary Clinton, but if you had a president Barack Obama, still, it wouldn't really. Uh, That The president wouldn't be a part of that. That wouldn't really be part of the conversation. Um, And so it's interesting to see um, the White House be a part of that. And um, I think it'll be interesting also to see how long that lasts, that big conversation.
4: I also think um, part of the reason people are Still feeling such a strong sentiment against Trump is because he routinely offends everybody. Yeah, I mean, yes. there was there yes. was a there's lots of reasons. There was a, a from, very
3: openly racist and sexist. Yes, and
4: aside from the Me Too movement and the sexual assault uh, claims all coming out against various men, um, there was a, a week or so, uh, a couple of weeks back, there was a period where, in the span of three days, I noticed that Trump had insulted. Um, Asian American or Asian leaders from a trip he had just been on. He, he mocked the way they they talked. Uh, he also insulted uh, Native American veterans when he hosted them at the White House and referred to Elizabeth Warren as Pocahontas. And he made references to the wall uh, and the need to protect America from bad Mexicans and Latin American or yeah, Latin Americans. Um, but those three examples I just cited were th- those happened in the span of one week like, a couple weeks back, and I just remember noticing, like, wow, okay, who's left? Like, I guess he can say something anti-gay and, uh, you know, throw something out about the black community. He's got all, like, the bases, like, offended equally.
3: As for the phenomenon of uh, people listening to women's claims of having been sexually harassed and assaulted, that, that story just keeps getting louder. Like, it's still crescendoing. It's reached a point, I think this week, for the first time, a guy, before he had even been outed, was like, you know what? I'm a creep. Here's what I did. Uh, Morgan Spurlock, the filmmaker. I don't know if anyone else has done this yet, but he just outed himself as having done questionable bad things and said that he wanted to be better. So it's, it just continues to ramp up, and every day it's a different – You know, people just say it, a dude's name in the office, and everyone sort of nods like, oh, yeah, him too
2: new hashtag i think that i think that that is a hashtag actually <laughs> um yeah i mean we're seeing more and more in congress i i i think that probably trump won't see any uh actual effects of being you know he's not gonna i don't think be like ousted over this or anything but um perhaps people will remember it when they go vote next time um for whether to keep him in power and um, we'll see. So I guess we'll do bold predictions again. So, do you guys think that what happened with Doug Jones means that Democrats will take the House and/or Senate next time?
4: I do not. This is I. I, I know. <laughs> I, I think that you know. Here we are a year out. This is a very exciting win for Democrats in Alabama. There are definitely Democratic wins happening all over the country at different levels. But at this stage, here in December 2017, I, I am not convinced that Democrats who are up for re-election next year have the momentum to buck trends in each of their states, enough of them to take back the Senate. Because there's a lot more Democrats up for re-election in uh, 2018 than there are Republicans in the Senate. And they are considered more vulnerable Democrats. So – my prediction is no. I, I think that the Senate stays in Republican hands.
2: I agree.
3: I think they'll take the House. Unnecessary, bold prediction. Love it. You know They they need to flip like uh, 20-something seats and who knows how many lawmakers will have resigned by then. I guess there's no reason. <laughs> there will be
2: like no House left.
3: There, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Them too. There's no reason to assume that more Republicans than Democrats will resign. Nope. But dudes are losing their jobs in Congress over – the uh the, the sex or
4: just resigning there's a bunch of dudes just resigning suddenly with no allegations out there against them well
3: yeah I mean that there always are a certain number of resignations but I you know, right now there' a are, lot Republicans are sick of being you know some of these Republicans are sick of being in the Donald Trump party for obvious reasons
2: all right well we will see this full prediction we won't get to find out for a while but uh thank you guys this has been uh Arthur Delaney and Jen benry thank you guys so much thanks Elise
3: In This is Arthur Delaney, and I'm joined in studio by my colleagues, Elise Foley.
2: Hey.
3: And Nick Wing. Hey, guys. We're excited to have you here, Nick, because there's a new reefer panic, a reefer madness situation surrounding the herbal supplement Kratom or Kratom. People are on. trying
1: to call it a uh, leafer madness. Leafer actually, madness. Perfect. It's,
3: yeah. So the context of this is an uh, unprecedented opioid epidemic in which millions of people are dying. Uh, after having struggled with addiction to opioids. And this is a a coffee-related herbal supplement that, for some people, they say it really helps them with withdrawal, which is important because when you're suffering withdrawal, you could wind up back on heroin and dead. So things that help people mitigate their withdrawal symptoms are good, but the Trump administration is taking a hard look at this and they think it's reefer, and they might say it's as dangerous as other things on the DEA's Schedule One, like LSD and marijuana,
1: heroin itself. So
3: what's what's going on? Why? How has this come to the to their attention? And why are they so freaked out by it?
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I would say this is this is definitely not uh, just a Trump administration thing. This is sort of a, a general law enforcement. Uh, view on this in and in an FDA view on this, which is that they see this product that's out there that is as an herbal supplement, pretty unregulated, and people are using it for all sorts of things uh, that have not been proven to be uh, actual therapeutic effects of this, because as an herbal supplement, it hasn't gone through these sort of Rigorous testing that's needed for it to be FDA approved. So they get, I think they're naturally concerned about any product that that um, is used by this many people for this many purposes, and that sort of set off the alarm bells. And you're starting to see these reports out here that is being tied to um, acute harm, you know, this overdose deaths, uh, other sorts of deaths, and uh, so they're so they're pushing back and, and. I think that's sort of a normal uh, decision by a regulatory agency that has only these sort of sledgehammer tools to deal with problems that end up needing needing scalpels for them, really.
2: So you had a really interesting piece about the way that uh, medical examiners attribute deaths to this. Can you tell us a little bit more about that?
1: Yeah, so th- the FDA last month cited 36 deaths of, what they called kratom associated deaths. And we filed a FOIA request. They didn't give us a list of it. So I started looking at um, state level data. And in Georgia, they reported having 15 kratom associated deaths. Uh, And so I got a list of these cases. And there were only four in which the substance Kratom, which is actually, there's a, uh, it's called mitragynine, which is the active substance. It would be like the THC to marijuana. Uh, so only four of those 15 cases, the people tested only for mitragynine for Kratom. Uh, so there were 11 other cases in which people tested positive for, you know, four, five, six, seven, eight, even nine different substances. And these are all being lumped together as Kratom associated deaths. And you know, if someone has taken heroin and you know benzodiazepines like um, you know Xanax and and taken all sorts of dangerous opioids, which we know are dangerous and have established harm profile, that you add on this one herb doesn't make it actually. There's no proof. There's no actual causation between how that was in you know how that was involved in the death. So. This is a a much broader problem. We're seeing cases where this is being lumped in and being attributed as a cause of death when the cases themselves are so complicated that you can't really tell how this killed them or if it killed them at all.
3: Do you know in the four cases where it was the only substance they found that that was necessarily like what killed the person?
1: So uh, they wouldn't release names, but I did get a hold of one of them. He's sort of the the main character in the story. The guy's name is John Grove and – you know his death with death was attributed to this to kratom uh, exclusively, but I got a hold of the the report of his autopsy and it looked a little bit weird. You know his his organs were uh, super enlarged. His heart was like fifty percent bigger than the normal human heart, if not larger. So I was like, you know, this this seems a little bit weird. And I ended up reaching out to the guy's dad, and the guy you know, he, the guy's dad had been on local media and and had sort of gone with this narrative that the kratom had killed his son and very quickly after me asking him some questions he he kind of got a little bit skeptical and he he said well you know i thought it was weird that they didn't mention the steroids and i was like what the steroids like i hadn't heard anything about that and he said yeah my son has you know been on anabolic steroids for 11 years and he was taking hgh and you know all of these things that We know that steroids and prolonged steroid use does terrible things to your heart. Um, We don't know what mitragenine does to your body. From what we do know, it doesn't kill you. So it seemed like the medical examiner in this case uh, missed something that was clearly a contributor, if not a more likely direct cause. And I think that's probably happening in a lot of places where people are seeing mitragenine kratom. They're, they're being told that it's dangerous and then they're just using it as sort of a scapegoat because they don't really know. And it's giving medical examiners a way to close a case that is otherwise harder to figure out how that person actually died.
3: And where does Kratom – or Medraginine – where does Kratom come from? What are its – what have been its main uses over the years and, and uh, you know is it, is it really something that's mainly been for treating people who are addicted to painkillers?
1: Um, so it has a, a really long background in Southeast Asia it comes you know it's really it is just essentially um, a, it's a tree it's tree related to coffee it's usually the, the leaves are ground up and people drink it as a tea or take it as a powder um, so it's had a, a use there for a long time it, it activates opioid receptors so it makes you feel a little bit euphoric it makes you feel kind of airy and nice and you, you tried it yeah I tried it last year I mean it felt i If you take a lot of it apparently has more sedative effects, but I just took a little bit and it sort of made me feel like I'd taken a double shot of espresso and i felt i felt nice i mean it felt nice but not impaired um and you know people take it for as sort of like a coffee in the morning if they if they have pain and apparently um by activating opioid receptors has those analgesic effects, people say it gives them anti anxiety effects. Uh, people use it for all sorts of things. I'm, I'm not going to vouch for it as that. It did not seem like the kind of thing that I would want to just take a whole lot of and see if I got messed up and uh, made me high. Um, but yeah, I mean, as something that activates opioid receptors, it, it people take it as a replacement, I think. Um, yeah. Th-
3: that's a significant detail because we do know that there's a general unwillingness among like the government and – uh, other regulators, regulators, and you know, medical professionals sometimes to recognize uh, medical treatment for addiction treatment. When people say uh, I got this person's got to get into treatment, usually it just means uh, rehab, where you're like given a Bible in a room and you're in there for like 30 days and you just have to be sober, and that's it. I, I think yeah, which doesn't recognize the chemical changes that take place in the person's brain as a result of severe addiction.
1: I, I really think that's the whole that's the whole essence of this this pushback right now is that um, you know there's very it's we're living in an abstinence only society where people are expected to get clean by being abstinent and we don't believe in harm reduction. We believe that that that's the only solution, and I think kratom is what we do know. So much better than heroin and so much better than these other opioids. And if you take that view that this is if you can use it as a replacement for these other things, that's a victory. And you know, but if you think that the only way to to beat addiction and, and to live a, a wholesome life is to be sober and not to take any substances, then you probably don't agree with that.
3: Are pharmaceutical companies playing a role in this?
1: There's a lot of conspiracy that they are. Um, I don't think that there's go- any evidence of that. I think pharmaceutical companies are naturally uh, skeptical of products like this because they haven't been through the same process that the pharmaceutical companies have to go through to have their things, you know, proven to be effective. And pharmaceutical, they would say that there are products that already do what the kratom does, and that they have been through the sort of tests, and that, you know. Why would you go to a natural alternative? Because there are these things, but you know, pharmaceutical companies, pharmaceuticals themselves come with all sorts of side effects. It's not like these things are safe. You know, as we know, that's a huge pathway to opioid addiction itself. So, to suggest that opioid painkillers are safe uh, is is crap. It doesn't. But like
3: kratom is not fish oil or vitamin C. It's a little more serious than those, type, you know, other things that are considered supplements.
1: You will, you will feel it if you take it, and you know whether that there is some role of, um, <laughs> some role of of a placebo effect, and it, it it sort of handling these all these various conditions. I, I don't know, but it it does actually make you feel a certain way.
3: So the most recent regulatory step that's been taken is FDA said they evaluated it and think it's probably bad, which you think could influence the DEA to make it super illegal?
1: The DEA was was going to ban it last year. They put off that decision pending an FDA analysis, which the FDA has now given to the DEA. And we don't know what that analysis said, but based on recent um, warnings from the FDA, we can certainly say that they didn't say it was good and didn't need to be addressed at all, right? I mean, so I think the the assumption and the fear is that their analysis says schedule it and that the DEA will potentially take that
3: at least fully the uh marijuana is still like really illegal under federal law right correct because it's legal in dc so i sort of forget sometimes like everywhere here in dc smells like weed and it's a great thing it's not a problem but it's just funny that uh we're gonna have this agency decide on a possible uh medicinal substance while it is currently obsessed with prosecuting people involved in uh, producing a uh, drugs from a really harmless plant, harmless and beneficial
0: plant.
1: I mean, that's that's sort of my interest in this. Is like we see in retrospect, the the laws about marijuana are just stupid and they've been dumb. We've spent you know forty years or longer trying to trying to undo the the harm that's been done with these bad laws and and you see the sort of same junk science and and fear-mongering coming up for another plant which people are using for more for medicinal purposes as well and you know it just seems like history is sort of repeating itself all right from
3: reefer madness to leafer madness nick wing elise foley thank you thanks for having me So that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced, edited, and engineered by Zach Young. Our executive producer is Nick Offenberg. I'm Arthur Delaney. And this week we were joined by HuffPost reporters Elise Foley, Jennifer Bendery, Matt Fuller, and Nick Wing. So That Happened is available on Apple Podcasts. Check out the whole family of HuffPost podcasts in the iTunes Store. And while you're there, give us a review. Five stars, please. And if there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, send an email to So That Happened at HuffPost.com. .com thanks to all of you for listening Acast powers the world's best podcasts Here's a show that we recommend